Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast that tries to find the reasons behind the unreasonable. I'm your host, Alexander Owen, and today's show, as fires rage across the world, the Conservative election plan seems to be to pretend that climate change is a culture war. Could it work and at what cost? And Suella Braverman's next big idea? Giant marquees for migrants. Because confining people to a B&B for years was too humane, apparently. Can performative cruelty really change her party's fortunes? Plus, we'll be choosing the heroes and villains of the week. Let's meet today's panel. That guy selling out both the Camden and Edinburgh fringes with his new stand-up show is here. Welcome, Matt Green. Lovely to be here. (laughs) Um, Donald Trump has been indicted again, and a new defendant added to the classified documents case for allegedly attempting to destroy surveillance tapes at Mar-a-Lago. He also revealed he has received a target letter on the capital invasion case from Washington, and the Georgia DA says that the case on election interference is also, I quote, ready to go. Will this become a no-smoke-without-fire problem for Trump? Or does the sheer volume of his criminality actually play into his defense that's some sort of campaign against him? Well, it it feels to me that he's playing sort of the highest stakes game in history at the moment, where it's basically either he gets elected president or goes to prison for the rest of his life. (laughs) There's nothing in between. It's quite a bizarre situation. And it is such an amazing defense, isn't it? The idea that he's going to stand there going, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, how likely is it that I committed all of these crimes. I mean, surely if I was a real criminal, I'd have I'd have just stuck to one or two. Real criminals don't commit like 12 crimes at once. That's mad. They kind of do, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But in a weird sort of way, I think you're right, that the more crimes he is said to have committed, the less plausible it sounds for his supporters because they sort of feel like, well, he can't have done all of these different things. Um, I, I don't know. In my mind, having a thrice indicted candidate for president is a bad idea, but the Republicans seem to love it. So, you know. In my mind, the use of the word thrice is Thank a you. bad idea, but there we are. Zoe Grunewald is a political reporter for the New Statesman. Hello, Zoe. Hello. On Friday, Peter Flavel, the the Coots CEO resigned. Is this effectively the end of the Farage affair? Are we likely to see him try to claim more scaps? Unfortunately, I think knowing Farage and the fact that he just won't it just won't go away. Um, I think it's it's probably going to go on and on because he's bringing yeah, everyone. It's almost gone yeah. away. You know those you know those horror films where the thing is desiccated. Oh yeah, he's the blob. And and a drop of yeah. blood falls <laughs> on it, and you just see it being absorbed. Yeah. Nothing happens, but you know. I know, and he's bringing everyone important along with him now as well. So Starmer, you know, has got some sympathy for mm. him, and you know, Liz Truss wrote an op-ed today in defence. Yeah, she did. So it's all, you know, it's all very tiresome. I tried my best to avoid it. I really didn't want to get into it because I thought it was a ridiculous story. But it turns out actually he's still got that political capital. So who knows what will happen? I think unfortunately it probably isn't going away and and neither is Farage. Mm. Does he have genuine political capital? I mean, if there wasn't a rump of newspapers that were desperate Mm. to basically get off the disastrous Tory performance mm. in the by-elections mm. and get on to something else. W- I mean, would it have worked if his pulpit was confined to GB News? Perhaps not. But at the end of the day, that is kind of what political capital is. You need a lot yeah. of media buy-in. So yeah. while he has that and while he has his GB News platform, I think, yeah, he's, he's stuck with us like a bad rash. 
<laughs> I have a cream for that. <laughs> Finally, returning to the show, is a hero of the Brexit battles. He's one of the lawyers who took on the government over its proroguing of Parliament in 2019 and won. He's also the author of the book Overruled, Our Vanishing Democracy in Eight Cases, about which I think I interviewed you at the time, didn't I, Sam? You did. Sam Fowles, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Sam, lawyers are public enemy number one once again for the Daily Mail and the Tories based on a, on a sting about lawyers allegedly telling migrants how to cheat the system. How widespread an issue is such unethical behaviour in immigration law and, and how is it policed? Well, I think probably by sheer force of numbers and statistics, you can probably find a dodgy lawyer if you look hard enough. Um, in the same way, you know, you can find a dodgy accountant or a dodgy gardener or MP, I don't know. Um, the point is, though, unlike, le let's take MPs, it's actually pretty difficult to be a dodgy lawyer because we are a really highly regulated profession. Mm. Um, and the consequences of even something quite minor can be absolutely catastrophic. So there was a, a lawyer that, for example, I think she, she left some papers in the boot of her car locked. The car got robbed and so the papers got, got taken. Mm. Um, and this was an ethical breach because it disclosed data. And, and that was the end of her career. So there's, there's really serious consequences for even the most minor mistakes, mm. which I, I, and I do hope that the, if there are people that are kind of running dodgy immigration practices, I, I hope they do face those consequences because we're only useful to people if we can stand up in court and the judge can have some sort of Confidence, confidence yeah. belief that we're basically going to tell the truth and we're not going to also not going to waste the judge's time with shit points, which is mm. it's quite important as well. But I do think it's it really throws quite quite a harsh spotlight on this, though, because, for example, so, yeah, you had some lawyers doing a really bad thing. Um, but you also had a couple of years ago, a cabinet minister that negotiated with a foreign power without the authorization of the prime minister. And um, she got promoted rather than <laughs> rather than fired. You had a cabinet minister that leaked state secrets. I, I he got promoted. I don't feel cabinet ministers should be the bar by which one should judge ethical <laughs> behaviour at the moment. Um, I think we will return to the issue of wasting the court's time with shit points when we talk about about the Home Office's immigration <laughs> policies later in the programme. I, I wouldn't like to cast aspersions on, uh, on, on any Home Office lawyers and the points they might be raising. PM vows to end anti-car moves. Ministers to curb speed limits. PM gives green light for more North Sea drilling. Britain makes it cheaper to pollute. I am on motorist's side. Just a selection of headlines from the last couple of days. I think I discern a pattern. He could see this world burn if he could be the king of the ashes when dramatic Game of Thrones quotes become our literal political truth. Where is there left to go? How did this plucky, amiable, tech-firm middle manager who promised to bring integrity, professionalism and accountability back to politics mutate into an actual Marvel supervillain in the space of nine months at the top? Zoe, 
This now seems a multi-pronged organised attack. Can you briefly explain just the various fronts of it, as it were? Mm, So I think let's start with today. So today the PM um, has basically given the green light for hundreds of new licences for oil and gas exploration. This comes on the back of a op-ed that he wrote over the weekend, basically saying he was going to be pro-motorist, announcing a review into uh, low-traffic neighbourhoods and, you know, going even further and, and, and calling Labour the party of, you know, anti-motorists, so to speak. And, and then this has all obviously come on the back of various climb downs on, on climate pledges from Sunak. So we saw uh, Lord Zach Goldsmith resign because he said the PM wasn't committed yep. enough. There was a story out um, in the Financial Times yesterday, or today's actually, I think it was today's headline, that the government has made it secretly cheaper for industry to pollute in Britain compared with the rest of the EU. And they've done this by watering down reforms to the carbon market. Mm. Um, so obviously that's one of those policies that's gone slightly under the radar as well but it basically uh, hints at the same thing which is that the government um, aren't really that interested in keeping a clean energy policy and then of course you've got something that the Conservatives have been doing a lot over the last month which is trying to position Labour as these eco you know zealot warriors who are hand in hand with Just Stop Oil and they're just they just want motorists if only (laughs) they just want um, you know to stamp on motorists and take all this lovely oil free money Um, and it's basically just seems to be a concerted campaign that's ramping up now to position themselves as in opposition to Labour they're on the side of the people and people's pockets and keeping costs low, whereas Labour want to push their green agenda at people's mm, expenses. Mm. So we've seen this this going on for a little while now, but it seems to have really ramped up post ULES, post Uxbridge, where we saw obviously what the Conservatives have spun as, you know, the public don't want green policies. They don't want clean air policies. They want to keep their money. Well, obviously the two aren't mutually exclusive, yeah. but that's how they'd like to present it. Um I'm going to ask you a difficult philosophical question. Okay. Seriously, <laughs> what can an opposition do when a government shifts to policies it absolutely mm. knows to be wrong, right? This this is the sa- this is the same government that was pushing these policies 2 months mm. ago. Ultra low emission zones and 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 low traffic neighborhoods and all of that stuff. So it knows they're the wrong policies it's switching to, but they might be they might prove to be popular. Mm. What does an opposition do with mm. that? This is almost like the big philosophical question for Labour, which is how far on they, a variety on of a variety issues, of issues. Yeah. It's how far will they shift to the right to accommodate what they feel is this voter base that will allow them to win the election to accommodate what this voter base thinks and feels. Now, I have a suspicion that this idea, which is often based on this sort of archetypal red wall voter, is grossly oversimplified. Mm. And actually, environmental policies, especially, they tend to be quite popular. A lot of people are sympathetic to net zero and see that we need to decarbonise to some extent. I mean, there might be varying agreements on how we do that. But actually, I think the majority of the public are with the green transition. But this is Labour's big question, you know, almost how far will they sacrifice their principles and piss off people in their own party Mm. to achieve electoral success? 
But what I actually think is there's almost a danger that Labour and the Tories are becoming too similar. There isn't enough different ground between them. And I think when it comes to election time, Labour need to be able to stand on a front and differentiate themselves. And this is a good issue. And I think it is. And, you know, they pledged 28 billion um, months ago and there wasn't a big uproar then. In Mm. fact, a lot of people thought that was a smart way of combining green growth with economic growth. Um, They've only backtracked really because they're being poked and prodded by the Conservatives. And because the country's finances are so much worse than they were a year ago. Absolutely. But just because the finance is worse doesn't mean that people no longer are in support of net zero. And there's Mm. definitely a way that they can couch it, which is, look, this investment is going to be good for you. It's going to put more money back in your pocket. It's going to create more jobs. It's going to make Britain great again, um, so to speak. So um, I actually think this is something Labour are grappling with, but I really think they need to hold their nerve because I think what people are starting to want to see is actually Labour putting their foot down and standing for something. And I think the environment is a very, um, you know, they've got, they've got, ethics on their side they've got the world on their side they've got science on their side exactly so they should hold their nerve um matt low traffic neighborhoods just like um ultra low emission zones are actually a government policy still are a government policy according to research the government itself commissioned they are incredibly popular with a majority of residents like you know 59, I think, was the lowest estimate. But if you included don't knows, it was like 60-odd. What are we missing here? I mean, are motorists this distinct voter demographic that don't have children, that don't breathe air, that don't... I mean, I, I am struggling to think of a large slice of voters who are just motorists mm. above everything else. Yeah, it feels like they're kind of trying to take on almost like an identity politics strategy with this of like making motorists like a new identity that can become victims in that sense. Mm. Um, and, and you're right, no one's just a motorist. We're all motorists and also pedestrians and also use other forms of public you know, public transport yeah. and also like to breathe occasionally and things like that. And so it does seem to me that basically the Tories have sort of been driven a little bit mad by that ULES campaign that, that, that they just managed to squeak home with a win. 495 votes. And, and, and that number of, it feels like they're massively extrapolating from a fairly small data set, a bit like when you're I don't know, when you're at home over Christmas and you mention just sort of casually that you quite like carrot cake and then for the next 10 years, that's the only type of cake that ever appears in the house. That's the thing, we can grab onto that, that's the thing. And it, and it feels like, um, I mean, the thing is about low traffic neighbourhoods is they are, they are a bit controversial. You know, I know people who live in LTNs who love them and I know one or two people in particular who live sort of on the outskirts of them, on the on the border roads of LTNs who hate them and think that they're just moving traffic into their yeah. neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is complicated, but they are, as you say, very locally popular. And mm-hmm. so if they think that's going to be a vote winner, I just don't think it will. It's. I find it all quite strange because it feels like they've been trying to import these this United States political climate, basically. We've Mm. talked about that a lot, right? And it just wasn't getting any purchase because religion and guns are not a thing here. And cars, I think, the same. So maybe, but maybe cars are a thing here. And I just don't know it because, you know, I live in a city and I don't drive. So 
could could this be like the Democrats are coming to take your guns? Could this develop I into think, a big thing that Labour are going to take your cars? Sure, and I think petrol prices, obviously, when they um, when there was a you know the, the petrol problems in the last couple of years, that did cause a huge um, issue, and obviously Blair had the issue when the petrol stations were being blockaded, and mm. suddenly that was the closest he felt like he was getting to a really serious issue. Yeah. In his, it was in their first term, wasn't it? Um, and I, th- I think you're right. Mot- I think motorists do have a certain amount of political sway, but I think that's like not as big a sway as they think it will be. And I think in the end, people will be more interested in yeah, the environment. I think it's mm. a, a bigger deal. Ian Duncan Smith jumped into the debate, which should be enough to convince <laughs> anyone that this is the wrong side of the debate to say that it is not greener to import fossil fuels, which we will have to do. Doesn't he have a point? I mean, he's right about that in one sense, in that, yes, obviously, it would be better if you have to use fossil fuels to use your own fossil fuels. But in this case, we're talking about licenses for exploratory event, you know, exploratory licenses. they might not find them. They might find them or they might not find them or they might find them in places that are difficult to access. Um, It'll take several years, probably a decade, if not two decades, before any of these fossil fuels actually get to the market. And then, crucially, they will then go on the open market. It's not like we will get our own fossil fuels and no one else will get access to them. They'll go onto the open market. So it, it just feels to me like investing because in fossil all the fuels. Companies are basically multinational. Exactly. We, it's not. It's not UK PLC doing it. It's giving licenses to other companies to do it. Um, Sam, when the government says it will still get to net zero, but do it rationally, <laughs> is the suggestion here that everyone else? was being irrational, including this government, up until a week ago. (laughs) (laughs) I think the suggestion is you're not supposed to think that closely about it. (laughs) No, I think what this goes to... Because, I mean, on the surface of it, who could object to that? Well, we we all like rationality, don't we? When we get there, but sensibly. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) No, this is something that is a a long-term strategy for, for successive governments, which is to basically play on our kind of national psyche that we we feel quite comfortable when there's there's a posh tall commanding sounding chap in charge and he's very you know we're just we're just very sensible people you know and we we had very sensible people with the economy in in the early early 2010s who plunged us into recession in their first month and then we had oh, I mean Theresa May is just quite a sad case but then we had um, very sensible Liz Truss who plunged us into recession in her first month um, and then then we, and Boris was also a very sensible person who well I would only say it, but and they, they the shtick is to just dress up whichever the latest batshittery is as just we're just doing a very sensible thing. Yeah. Um, this we can have cake and eat it approach is quite chillingly reminiscent of the Brexit debate, right? Um, I saw, uh, I think it was Andrew Bowie was doing the media rounds on Monday morning um, going, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, every time he was asked, isn't all this stuff, doesn't it go against all your climate pledges? And he was going, no, 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 we can do both. We can burn more fossil fuel and somehow get to net zero as well. And it seems to me it's, it's a bit like the thing that 
they keep talking about today is carbon capture. Mm. That's their big thing is, well, we're, yeah. we're going to do carbon capture. And and in, in a spectacular demonstration of the fuck around and find out <laughs> principle, um, literally uh, on Monday afternoon, as soon as they announced this stuff, uh, uh, a billionaire investor is basically saying, I might pull out of UK um, investments if if that's their idea of green policies yeah. to back these sort of debunked, you know, notions of, oh, we'll just take the carbon and bury it under the <laughs> ground and it will be there for millions of years, unable to hurt you. <laughs> it's like, it, it, it seems to me like carbon capture to me feels like the something, something, something of climate science, like in the sense of like when you're writing a sketch or a story or a article you know you you get halfway through and think, oh, i don't quite know how to link a to b <laughs> i just put i just i'll just write something 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 uh, and something, something and then and you come back to it later and it just feels like that's basically what it is all the way through it's like and then they'll have some carbon and then something something, something and we won't have any carbon anymore hang on can we just go back to the something 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 and it and and everything i've read about it today and there's all these explainers of how it works. And there's always just a moment where it says, this hasn't actually been done yet, but there will be a, a, yeah. at some point it will happen. Um, now, now, Sam, what I wanted to ask you in this is, I, I spent all of Monday watching sort of very professory types on TV explaining all about the figures and why it doesn't work. Is there a danger that just like the Brexit debate, the truth gets lost in the, in the sort of figure quoting weeds or is there a direct catchy way to counter the lie to just say no yeah well i think there's definitely a danger because this has not come out of nowhere this this change is not because rishi sunak woke up and was like god i just love my pri private plane i'm gonna <laughs> say something good about it it says that every morning <laughs> yeah. I you. well i mean who doesn't really <laughs> um no, this this is a, a campaign that's been running for a long time now, and you had a, a bunch of sort of US billionaires starting to put some money into the anti-net zero campaign, and they got the IEA on it, they got policy exchange on it, and then they got their sort of pet politicians and speakers on it. So this has been been going for a while, and you've got Rishi Sunak sort of basically kind of seeing which way his bread is buttered, mm. um, and so and that he's going to have huge support in the in the general election of just bashing on. This uh, this message of oh all this this scary green stuff that's done by people in Islington is going to make you poorer so let's react against it and give them a spanking again like we did with Brexit and that that's that works that's a good argument mm. but the I think what we're missing in um, encountering it is having. A, a positive vision of net zero. Even the word itself, right, net zero, it's sort of negative. It's what we're not going to get. Why aren't we talking about the fact that you could literally pay about 100 quid a, a year for your energy bills uh, with solar upgrades? Mm. You know, you can travel so much more cheaply if we expand, do, do the sort of expansion of the public transport yeah. that is needed to make net zero work. All of these really good, positive things that will make your life easier on a day-to-day -day basis must be vote winners, right? But we don't really talk about that. We just talk about these grand global campaigns and the politicians kind of go and they get yeah, their yeah, picture yeah. taken at the global summit. And all people here as well, you know, you've got to make sacrifices, mm, you've got to dig yeah. in. Ed Conway wrote a, a very a, a piece along the same lines last week, which said basically climate policy at the moment is all stick. 
and we yeah. do need mm. some carrot. And there is a lot of carrot, mm. so it's, it's well, like carrot sticks. weird. Zoe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can I ask you, you know, we see big profits. Last week it was British gas, but there's, there's constantly various. And, and all of this money, it's quite expensive. And all of it will go into subsidies for big global giants. Might there be a way for Labour to turn this into they're just giving more money to their mates. Their priority is the big companies. Mm. Yeah, they definitely should. I mean, the concern is, does that stick? Mm. Um, Do voters really take that in? Um, But I actually think there's there's a really good argument, as you say. I mean, we know, for example, that um, the chief executive officer of a, a company called Enquest, which has already got dozens of licenses for North Sea oil and has won four more for carbon capture, our favourite thing, has basically donated half a million pounds to the Conservative Party over the past decade. So we know that there are these links here. And whether or not they actually are influential. I mean, you know, they will, sure, they'll say that they're not. But of course, you know, when there are donors involved, that there's a certain, you know, carrot and stick, here comes yeah. the money, and this is what we expect well, back. They, they will say that while pointing out simultaneously yes. that just a boil, cousin twan, twice removed from a Labour yeah. donor, is definitive on their policy. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And obviously, this is smog basically revealed in March that the Conservatives have received five point, sorry, 3.5 million from polluters, fossil fuel interests and climate deniers just in 2022 alone. So there's a huge lobby here that mm. are funding the Conservatives. Um, and this even, you know, this also gives, I think, which is gives Labour a great defence and also is why they haven't really taken seriously any of those letters from Greg Hans um, asking <laughs> Labour to nicely return their donations um, from Dale Vince. So, I mean, obviously, the Conservatives have tried to take this narrative for themselves and push it on Labour. But Labour have got a great defensive line and plenty to point out about the Conservatives' own interests. I also think this fits very much with the narrative that voters have had for the past year or so, which is it just seems like the Conservatives rule through a chumocracy where they do things in the interests of their friends and yeah. their donors. And it's one rule for them and another rule for I everyone else. could so, be quite a strong... Yeah, so I think Labour should... Exploit that. I think in the past it maybe hasn't. Um, they've they've tried to use that and it hasn't really appealed to voters so much. But I think if they capitalise on the mm. l- events of the last year, I think it'd be quite successful. So, in the three recent by-elections, there was very little to the right of the Tories. Right, the UKIP successor vote has all but disappeared. The Greens did well. Ten days of focus on ULES has not moved the dial on the polling at all. I mean, the Tories have actually lost a point in the last ten days. <laughs> Um, and there, there has been a little bit of fight back from within the party. Um, former Energy Minister Chris Skidmore was raging about this being on the wrong side of voters and the wrong side of history. So what votes are the Conservatives going for here? Well, it feels like the wrong side of history is their current campaign slogan, which <laughs> it, it, they're really you know going for it now and going, we are going to really stick it to the future <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to really stick to the past. I, I think that it seems to be just a kind of a base strategy of just really hold on to our base and grab a few motorists uh, and see if that works. But yeah, it does feel like they're flailing to me. I'm going to take a different view, okay. actually. So the thing is, we kind of pretend in Britain that we sort of live in this place where the parliament reflects a majority, but actually it hasn't done so since 1936. That mm-hmm. was the last time. Um, so you don't actually need to win that many people over to win an election. So 
what the Conservatives need to to win in 23 or 24 or wherever is just a hard core of people that are sort of pissed off about enough things mm. that they can blame others for in a certain number of constituencies. And that could actually deliver them a, a majority. So it's aimed at animating their base rather than attracting new voters. Yeah, animating their base, but also, I think, animating the their coalition from uh, from 2019. Because there wasn't, there wasn't a positive vision that they offered in 2019. They said, get angry at Europe, get angry at immigrants, get angry at, you know, lawyers like me. They were very angry at us. Mm. And and that was enough to give them the seats on, I think, a 40, what, 44% uh, vote share. So I, I can see it's a tactic that might be a bit more effective than we think because of our truly broken electoral system. Yeah, you may be right. Uh, my, my view for what it's worth is that I think this is an overreading of the, the Uxbridge result supported by an overreading, I think, of focus groups and polling, which I'm sure they've done internally, because I think people are so switched off by them that when you ask people, do you think they might be better at managing the economy? They go, no. Do you think they might be better at managing the health system? No. Education? No. And then you somehow make it down the list. And when you mention cars and environmental policies, they go, well, maybe. And and that is interpreted as the sole hook mm. on which they will hang their next election campaign. I think it might turn out to be a mistake. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I also think there's a bit of sort of random strategizing going on, which is that A, they're trying to set traps for Labour by throwing out mm, things mm. that they know are going to unsettle yeah. Labour. You know, they've already it's already caused a row between Sadiq Khan and Keir Starmer, for example, over ULES. But I also think there's a little bit of oh, this could be a wedge issue, maybe. Let's have a look. Let's see. Let's Brief, try it. Let's try it. Write an op-ed. Greg, you know what to do. Write a letter. <laughs> yeah, And it's, you know, it's a little bit random, I think. And I, I know, I, I'm sure we all think, you know, Sunak's surrounded by the brightest and the best. And I'm sure he is surrounded by a lot of bright people. But I think there's a little bit of panic stations going yeah, on. Yeah. And they're still trying to find a wedge issue that they can exploit. They thought they'd done it with the um, gender recognition stuff. I'm not sure that's stuck as much. I think they think maybe... No, I think they're, they're just trying to find enough wedge issues to provoke the base. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week who marries a big slice of cake and who deserves a big dollop of caca. <laughs> Zoe, let's start with you. My hero is the member of the public who photographed Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, <laughs> um, red box unattended on a train for four minutes and uh, sent it to the papers. And now Jenrick's getting a big slap on the wrist because you shouldn't leave your red box unattended in a public place. I just liked that. I thought that was good. It reminds us that there still is sort of base levels of incompetence within the Conservative <laughs> Party. And, um, you know, I'm sure that person's feeling very smug and pleased with themselves. So probably it, Sue Gray. You know. It was, it probably was. Anyway, it made me chuckle. So there you are. And your villain? My villain of the week is Landlords. All of them. All of them. Uh, all, every single one, unfortunately. <laughs> Nobody gets off scot-free. Um, no, so there was a um, study last week that basically said there's 20 uh, prospective renters to every rental property now. You know, these are real people just trying to exercise one of their human rights, which is to have shelter. And yet landlords are making hay while it pisses down on people's heads. <laughs> you know, you have to jump through unbelievable hoops to try and get a rental property. And yet landlords continue to push up their prices. And obviously, they're dealing with mortgage rates as well. But some of it is just 
it's just exploitation. And uh, today um, there was a big slap on the wrist for the housing association that um, oversaw the death of that um, two-year-old yeah. toddler who died from mould exposure. Um, and it's just a reminder that, you know, as much as I think there's a lot of um, landlord lobbying in in government and uh, in in Parliament, actually, some of these associations, some of these landlords are exploiting people's need for shelter, and and sometimes people's lives are lost as a result of it as well. So that's my villain of the week. Okay, N- notable entries. Sam, how about you? My hero and my villain of the week is the same person. Actually, <laughs> okay, it's, it's Tim Montgomery. Oh. <laughs> um, and so I'll do villain first and, okay. and then hero to like kind of give him a redemption story at the end. So he is the villain of the week um, because he um, came up with possibly, I think, the worst political take that, that he's ever, ever, has, has, has ever come up with. I think I know which um, one. Which is that he suggested, because the High Court did a very, very bad thing and ruled against the government, which is clearly just you know treason and shouldn't be allowed, um, he said, well, really what we need is we need to politically appoint the court. And he said this on the day when the world's most famous politically appointed court, the US Supreme Court, came out with three of the maddest judgments, um, <laughs> topping topping last year when it came up with a judgment that was based on a 16th, the writings of a 16th century witch hunter. That they Not only did they try and quote this guy, they quoted him wrong. He was more liberal than the, <laughs> the judgment they came up with on abortion. Um, but they then came uh, came up with a judgment uh, about that basically LGBT people should have less rights and it was based on a factual circumstance that it turned out didn't exist the claimant just made up yes, this fact yeah. and the Supreme Court said oh well yeah. you know that's that's terrible your made up circumstance we're not going to check it's real <laughs> but you know screw those gays let's get them so villain of the week for the stupidest take ever hero of the week for uh, his tweet about Rishi Sunak. Um, Because when Rishi Sunak tweeted that Labour are in league with criminal gangs... Um, over immigration, he tweeted saying, "No, this is this is not not acceptable. You should do better." And I really respect that because clearly, Tim Montgomery's bread is buttered on the Rishi Sunak side. Lots and lots of commentators of his ilk were going, "Yay, let's get those criminal gangs that are led by the former director of public prosecutions." Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't. He bucked the trend. We live in very partisan times. It's nice to see someone at least try and get a fingers grip on some ethics. Okay. Okay. How about you, Matt? Uh, well, on a similar um, sort of level, um, my hero is not someone I would probably consider a hero most weeks, uh, is um, former CIA officer and Republican, former Republican congressman Will Hurd, who's running for the presidency. And I, I wouldn't put any money on him. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Um, the one that got booed. Yes, uh, but he got booed at the Lincoln dinner in Iowa, a big Republican event. Um, and the reason he got booed is because he said at the end of his speech, and it's worth watching because he does quite a rousing speech about what we need to do in this party is sort of bring people together and quite a, sort of quite a uniting speech. And then he says, and the, the only reason that Donald Trump is running for president is to stay out of jail. And they booed him. And I thought it was at least a nice moment of someone telling the truth mm-hmm. at a Republican mm-hmm. event. And that's quite a rarity these days. And yeah, he won't win and he'll definitely lose <laughs> but immediately. But he said it. But he said it. He said and, he, it. and it was reported. It's and he, out there. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was, that was you know, that was heroic in a sense. And villain probably would be Netanyahu uh, because 
the judicial reforms in Israel are being pushed through ever more. Um, well, he, he, he tried to push them all through last year and there was massive protests and he's now pushed a few through. And his, but he seems to be in no way backing down, uh, mm. despite the fact there are these enormous protests against him. And it does feel like a situation where Israel is slowly becoming less and less of a democratic place. And that's a real you know, shame. Okay, so my decision is I'm going to go for Sue Gray for taking that photo. <laughs> <laughs> taking a photo of the red box. Good on you, Sue. Uh, and for villain of the week, I'm going to go for Tim Montgomery. I take on board what you say that he's also hero of the week, but I think Montgomery is sort of really emblematic of that kind of conservative person who occasionally you think, oh, that one is not so bad, and then suddenly just a torrent of shit on, <laughs> on 20 other issues come, comes out, and you think, oh, no, it's just, it's just that a blind pig occasionally finds an acorn. <laughs> Meanwhile, in another part of the forest, unbeknown to our brave heroes, a twisted, malevolent force was gathering strength. Yes, I am talking about Suela Braverman's latest. <laughs> the Home Office is reportedly buying giant marquees, which will house up to 2,000 asylum seekers. Only giant marquees makes it sound like everyone will mingle and have canapes. <laughs> Big tents is what we're talking about. We will take people fleeing war and dump them in the middle of a field. This comes just days after Suela Braveman was found to have broken the law by denying three pounds a week to pregnant women and children under the age of three. And the first asylum seekers are due to arrive on the Bibi Stockholm, our shiny new prison barge today, but apparently the local fire service have not cleared this. What could go wrong? <laughs> Matt, considering these things are done primarily for show, are you surprised by just how badly they're organised? Well, no, because they are done primarily for show. I mean, the answer's in the question, because they are essentially a PR exercise, and it feels like that's essentially what's happened, is someone's gone, what could we do? Could we get a barge? Could we get a boat? Oh, there's probably a boat somewhere we could get. Yeah. And they haven't really thought about it. They haven't checked whether it's actually seaworthy. They haven't checked that it's not a massive fire trap. I mean... Uh, the fire. Someone from the fire service described it as a potential second Grenfell, and you think floating Grenfell. I mean, it's just that's it. just a, a horrible mm. idea to to have out there. But they obviously think that it's it's not about that. It's about winning the headlines. It's about the base strategy that we've already talked about. And um, but you know the the numbers involved are very small compared to the backlog. So yeah. they are symbolic. So what I'm wondering is why not go for a more modest barge? You know, that will take a couple of hundred people and do it up really nice. If that, you know, so that you can do it efficiently and look ruthless rather than going, yeah, we're going to, oh, no, we, do, we don't have anywhere to moor these boats. And then the local, you know, you lose a petition to the local council because they don't want it there. And, and you go through and you end up looking even more incompetent but also fascist like but, I, like, but, it, but it's the old like thing that they're... Orwell's 
boot, only it keeps stubbing keeps, its toe keep, forever. It keeps slipping. Yeah. It keeps just stubbing its toe on a chair leg yeah. forever. I quite like the idea of Circo employing Rosie and Jim with their little houseboats. To, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> just take a couple. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But isn't that? But part of it is that they almost want to look like they're failing, so that they can say the old thing of "We were stopped from doing this. We had this great For idea." For external reasons, though, right? They mm. they want to look like they're failing because someone is resisting them mm. not because you know they put a mm. bunch of people on a on a fire hazard on a death <laughs> trap and it went up in flames yeah the biggest obstacle to all those plans has actually come from local conservative politicians every <laughs> single time uh, so so braverman actually lost a legal case 10 days ago brought by tory councils against disused barracks housing people how can she square that circle? Because everyone wants, you know, asylum seekers to be put somewhere out of sight, but no one wants them in their constituency. It makes no sense to me. I don't know. I mean, I, when when I saw that picture of when they talked about tents and 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 marquees and things, I thought I don't want to be flippant about it. But if they're just going to put loads of people in tents in the countryside, why not just add some stages and bands <laughs> and then sell tickets and then use that money to put migrants up in better accommodation? They just, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a solution. It's just an idea. <laughs> okay, um, Zoe. Hmm. Would a clear plan from Labour to eliminate the backlog in a matter of months not completely undercut the Tories on this issue? Why haven't they done that already? So I think, unfortunately, it goes back to what we were saying before. This is a difficult issue for Labour as well, for exactly the same reason it is for the Conservatives, that they are worried about how their plans will be received by voters. Um, of course, you would think any kind of semblance of competence on this, any coherent plan would be really well received. But it's very complex. It's very thorny. It costs a lot of money. There's real problems with processing. There's real problems with the number of people coming over and how that's only going to increase. And it's a complex issue. I think Labour do have some good ideas, I think, or at least they're trying to put together some good ideas. I think, obviously, they also won't want to release anything too good because the Conservatives will take it for their own, which is what they love to do. But, you know, Labour's going to face a similar challenge. I mean, immigration is a hot topic for voters and both parties are scared of it. I know, but this isn't about immigration. This is about asylum seekers mm. sort of being rolled into immigration. I mean, the obvious solution is an amnesty. Mm. If the system's clogged up, you know, 100,000 people are a rounding error in the grand scheme of things. Subject to security checks, obviously, just go, you're all citizens, go work, make taxes, sweep streets, be nurses. Mm. But that leaves them very vulnerable to attack from the Conservatives and that part of the voter base that will say you're letting too many people in you know it's that that that's what they're all scared of being accused of and i think that's where the the radio silence on the issue comes from and it allows the conservatives to keep doing ridiculous things and then blaming you know the lefty lawyers and labor and just stop oil and everyone else for <laughs> why it's not working so braveman lost Two more cases last week. One, like I said, on a three-pound supplement to pregnant women and children. I mean, this is proper fucking Disney villain stuff, right? And another on housing unaccompanied children on their own in hotels. I mean, it's extraordinary that a court needs to come along and say this. 
So the sums are so small. What do you think is the actual end game here? First, I will say, um, Suella used to be a member of, well, no, never a member of my chambers. She was a pupil at my chambers. Right, yeah. Because um, she's been made an honorary case. Yeah. She's nowhere near. Yeah. She's quite a rather inexperienced junior. Yeah. But what I was going to say is, is uh, from what I hear, she wasn't a stranger to losing cases during her oh. uh, career at the bar. <laughs> um, I think the... Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think the the end game is I think it, it's, it's the politics of being a dick to people, um, and you see this in the U.S. Right, the the goal of so much Republican policy isn't actually to make anyone's life better; it's to what they call own the libs, and we've seen yeah, there's we've got. 10 years, if not more, of failure to actually improve people's lives. There's very few people in, in government who, who even know how to do that, who even got any experience in sort of public policy or running businesses or making someone's life better. But what they're really good at is making someone's life worse. So the idea is that our pitch to you as a, as a government is we're going to get these people you hate and that we're going to make their lives as bad as possible so we can all get behind making these people's lives that you don't like really shit. Hmm. And and then and that's that's the pitch to the voters. That's why people are going to vote for them. Um, the Illegal Migration Act has been deemed to be at odds with international law. There was a letter from a Lords Committee last week that expressed concern that between the the Illegal Migration Act and data protection concerns, which are being also watered down, the UK might end up being excluded from the sharing of police and security data mm. by the EU. Um, and the impact would be that we would be much worse at sort of finding these international gangs and stopping this mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, so do you think that's a realistic thing that the EU might actually go, you're going too far? Well, I mean, the EU has form. In the um uh, the Schrems case, which was about uh, the, whether the United States had sufficient uh, data safeguards yeah. in place, scuppered um, a much bigger potential deal. It, right? re it really did, and there was there was real questions for quite a while about whether you were going to send. And this this wasn't just criminal data; this was everything yeah. um, from Europe to uh, to America. So there's there's certainly parties in the EU that take data sharing and take privacy really, really seriously. And it's it's particularly serious when you get to this sort of um, criminal-related data, because obviously, a, a huge, and certainly by um, in terms of how much money it makes, the, the crime that makes the most money is transnational. Now, mm -hmm. criminals have, you know, are as effective as global banks in, in operating transnationally. And so police have to have to do the same thing. So you have to share fingerprints, DNA, photographs, criminal records. These are shared transnationally between different agencies. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is maybe it's justifiable if you're doing that when there's a, it's about a criminal, but you don't always get it right. There's, we don't always target the right people. Some people are found innocent. And so we have to be really careful about the, the safeguards that are put in place. So if the EU start to feel that just Britain is not up to scratch and not to be trusted with this really sensitive data, mm. then I think there will be significant political pressure at uh, EU level to... Um, whether that's suspending all of the uh, the TCE or just or suspending just parts of it, or, or yeah. then um, I, I think that's a real a real problem. Zoe, um, received wisdom is that this will make the UK a pariah. This is a question I ask a lot because it worries me. 
might it make it a paradigm? Because I think there is an assumption on the part of progressive people that the world will look on in horror. But mm. might there be a lot of countries that look on with interest mm. and think, hmm... I think we are seeing a rise in nationalism across the world. You know, we've seen it in the US, we've seen it in Europe. It's almost like a swing back from when we became very sort of cosmopolitan and we were globalising and everybody was, you know, the, the internet um, hastened the spread of globalisation as well. And I do think as a result, the, the resulting issues we're facing and things like climate change, mass migration, a lot of countries are leaning towards the right because they don't know how to deal with these issues and they sort of want to close the doors. Mm. But you can't close the doors, as Sam was saying. You know, the horse has bolted. Crime now is is transnational. <laughs> so many problems we face are transnational and you really need to work together with other countries. I do think um, there will be, you know, it was the same after Brexit, there were conversations about which country will be next, which country will want to leave the EU next. But um, you don't have to look too hard at what's happened in the UK since to realise it might not be that wise of an idea. <laughs> um, we are the slowest growing economy in the G7 and all sorts of other um, uncomfortable statistics that the Conservative right like to pretend will be fixed by just closing our borders and, mm. you know, leaving the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. I was watching Indian business news today. Don't ask me why. <laughs> um, and they were just admirably clear in they were going, the UK economy is a fucking bin fight. Yeah. <laughs> and these are the six reasons why. And they went austerity, yeah. lack of investment in infrastructure and R&D, mm. Brexit, mm. the COVID pandemic, energy prices. Yes, those things that, mm. that the Conservatives always cite. And then the, the last thing was insufficient housing stock. And they did it so simply and so plainly. You think, yep, that's it. That's great, yeah. That's the actual situation. <laughs> and those are the six reasons. <laughs> and four and a half of them are entirely within the gift of this government mm. to fix or make worse. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's almost inevitable that sort of Britain went first with Brexit because we're the tiny island that's always been a little bit racist, a little bit hostile to yeah. all sorts. You know, it kind of, I'm sure all the other countries were like, well, hang on, let's just see how Britain gets on. And then they've gone, do you know what, actually, I think we're all right. We'll stay here. Yeah. The EU is currently being a Greek mother going, if all your friends jumped off yeah. a cliff. Yes. Exactly. Um, Don't you think there's an irony, though, that the that one of the most... Just the one. Just the one. Yeah. One of the most globalised movements is the nationalist movement. Mm. And they literally have global Networks. nationalist conferences yeah, yeah. and global nationalist networks. Yeah. yeah. Let's work together to be a part. Um, <laughs> Matt, I go back to something we were discussing under the previous topic. There is no evidence in the overall polling figures that this makes a dent in the Tories' 20-point deficit. So why persist with it? You said earlier that there's no one on the right at the moment, and I suppose that's what they're worried about, is that obviously Farage has popped back up in the last couple of weeks um, as a figure that suddenly is everywhere. And I th surely they must be a bit worried about that, that at the moment they don't have anyone on the right of them, but that could always happen and there's time enough for him to pop up and say and, and campaign on this or campaign on something else or somebody else could do that uh, as well. And I, I also slightly worry that it's also them... 
seeing how skittish Labour are at the moment uh, about the defeat For sure. in Uxbridge For and sure. almost seeing how far they can push Labour For because sure. it feels like they're saying, well, we're, we're anti this and Labour keeps sort of going, well, I guess we're sort of a bit anti that too. And, it, <laughs> and as you said earlier, it's like at some point Labour have to actually take a stand and say, no, we're not going to do that. Mm. But it feels like Starmer and his team are being quite careful, is a polite way of putting it, about actually being clear about a lot of these things. Yeah. And at well, some point... it goes back to what Sam was saying about lawyers, you see. The culture is one of risk aversion. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it really true. depends on the lawyer, though, doesn't <laughs> it? No, I mean, no, 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 it doesn't, actually. <laughs> I mean, I used to be a lawyer, so I, I think that it, it is about assessing mm. how the worst-case scenario of mm. X plays out. Um, and avoiding it to defend my my profession and uh, and you know some of the best lawyers I've, I've seen who have stood up in court and you've gone God that's a mad argument they're never going to win with that <laughs> and then they do um, but I, th I think actually it's that so many people who work in politics know politics and so and the first when you do a politics course the first thing you get taught is that analogy of a beach and if you're going to sell ice creams on the beach where do you put your um, where do you put your ice cream stand? And the place where you, do, where you put it is next to the other ice cream stand because yeah. then you get, you know, you get the big bit and they, they get the small bit. And that's like, that is politic, literally politics 101. That's what the course is called. Yeah. And I feel like there is a, a generation of people working in politics who have in just totally internalized that. And maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe that is the, the absolute right way to go. Um, but they're, what we're seeing from Labour seems to be just applying that, that tactic to the nth degree. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for our escape routes, and heaven knows we need them. <laughs> um, what are the panel's recommendations for things that might help listeners get a rest from screaming at a telly for an hour or two? So um, let's start with you, Matt. Uh, well, I have recently finished watching a fantastic Australian TV show, which is on Disney Plus, called Mr. Inbetween. Don't know if anyone's... Yeah. So good. Yeah. So good. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's great because it's quite hard to define what it is. It starts off and you think it's sort of like a black comedy almost, a, a, about a sort of rubbish criminal and his slightly stupid criminal friends. But it slowly becomes something quite deep and interesting and quite affecting and by the end of it it's quite moving and there are shades of Breaking Bad, shades of almost like The Office in some of the comedy but it's very Australian, it's got a really dry Australian sense of humour and it's it's the sort of brainchild of this guy called Scott Ryan who's the creator and the lead actor and it's a, there's a fascinating story behind how it was how it was made, which I'd recommend people looking at as well. But yeah, it's really yeah really good, and it's quite short, three series. It's all on Disney Plus, and uh, it's worth a binge. It's interesting how the the sort of the origin of series becomes fashionable almost in waves. Mm. You know, you get a bunch of Korean stuff, and then you get a bunch of Australian stuff. Yeah. How about you? 
I am not very cultured, um, unfortunately. So I have been watching Below Deck Down Under, the new season, <laughs> um, which I just would recommend because who doesn't want to watch um, a bunch of rich people embarrass themselves on a boat and then all the crew drama that results from it? <laughs> it's in Australia as well, so there's always a little bit of a risk that there might be a shark attack. I mean, there never is, obviously. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, it's, it's got everything. It's got, you know, class war, excitement, shark attacks. So, yeah. Um, the Meg 3, the Meg <laughs> <laughs> So, I've watched that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Below Deck Down Under. And if you like Below Deck Down Under, there's plenty of other Below Deck franchises as well to get your teeth into. So. Very good. How about you, Sam? Um, well, I'm I'm even more basic. I watched Barbie um, at the weekend. Really and it was fantastic. <laughs> Not only did I watch Barbie, uh, but I dressed in pink to to watch Barbie, which and I was very upset that my wife, who went with me, didn't dress in pink. So I, I was really the hardcore well, fan there. Someone has to be the Ken, dear. <laughs> well, exactly. I keep telling you, I'm, I'm I'm going with Alan. Not that Ken. is Alan behaviour, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was it was. Firstly, performances are amazing. I mean, I don't care what anyone says. Ryan Gosling needs an Oscar for for that because it was phenomenal. But there's a partly serious element to it. And I think as a sort of, you know, cis, straight, white guy, it was good for me to go and see it and be like, have a little bit of a think about yourself. Um, and it, re- it really, that it takes that kind of, you know, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, incel masculinity and exposes the, you know, the sheer fragility under it and just the, oh, like, the, in, the fear of not being at, good enough. That's a decent attempt at making it sound, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I prefer Zoe's honesty. <laughs> For my part, it's like, did, this is trash, I love it. <laughs> I did see Barbie too. Um, and actually, do you know what, the final There's already mess- a Barbie too. Oh, Barbie too, yeah. <laughs> I saw Barbie and I have to say the final message, it's very embarrassing to admit, it got a bit lost on me. I was really enjoying it all the way through and it very much rang true to me because I went to an all-girls school and the bit where the men find out what, the Kens find out what patriarchy is. Oh, well, there's... uh, All I say is if you've gone to an all-girls school, you'll (laughs) you'll know exactly what I mean when it feels like when you discover feminism and, and why. But the last bit where... I can't speak about it without giving a spoiler. <laughs> Basically, it's it's quite confusing. I find the okay, message quite confusing. Right. There's a really good dance number as well, so yeah. let's just yeah. go with that. So um, uh, I, inspired by the great Diane Lockhart, um, have uh, signed up for an Aikido course starting on the 1st of September, and I've started practicing at home with my key breathing and some Aikitaiso, which is the moves that you can do without a partner, and some basic uh, katas, which are the repetitive moves with a joystick. And it just felt like in, in an increasingly hostile world, practicing a martial art that is all about defending oneself without hurting your opponent, it just seemed like the right thing to do. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> it is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? We will be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. All that is left for me to say is Domo Arigato Gozaimashita. Zoe Grunewald. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Matt Green. Thank you, I think. And some fouls. Also, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Matt Green and Zoe Grunwald. Our guest today was Sam Fowles. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. And the producers were Chris Jones and Alex Rees. Assistant production was from Adam Wright, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. 
socials were by Jess Harpin, with art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production.